Hello, innovators. I'm Todd Wyant, and welcome to the Bridging the Gap podcast presented by Applied Software. You're invited to join our MEP and construction innovation adventure with the mission to propel this great industry forward. My guest today is Jorge Tubella. He is a creative technologist who combines his interests in robotics, artificial intelligence, and design to research construction technology systems. He was a founding member and formerly the coordinator of the Robotics and Digital Fabrication Lab at Florida International University. And currently, he is a construction technology specialist at Haskell Construction. Welcome to the show, Jorge. Hey, Todd. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So how did you get into the construction industry? Sure. Um, so my family I'm, uh, has two generations on the back end of construction. My grandfather and my father, and currently my brother, are were, uh, in the construction industry. So I kind of grew up around that industry. Uh, working as you know, manual laborers, learning the trades, things of that sort. Um, throughout my education, I saw that uh, you know architecture would have been a nice uh, addition to my family's business. So I went to architecture school, and I started you know hammering away there, doing all my work. Uh, and through that process, I got in, interested in technology. So I started uh, researching you know different types of small robotics, Arduino, things of that sort. Uh, and I built a couple of my projects, including the technology, you know, uh, models that moved responding to sensory data, things of that sort. Through there, I got involved with, uh, with a grant uh, with my former boss, Shaheen Vasig, and uh, we built the robotics lab. So one of the things that we were trying to address is how is technology playing a role in um, the construction industry or the AEC sector. Uh, from there, I saw the immediate bridge into uh, physical use of these robots on site or prefabrication, and I made the leap to go into construction. Um, so that's where I'm at recently right now. Nice. Thanks for the, the, the background there. So I want to dig in a little bit deeper. How does an architect go full contact? Sure. So uh, it was in part technology and just, you know, kind of riding that wave uh, that, that I've always seen around and a combination of that and always liking to build things. You know, I've always been handy. I used to build furniture with my father. Uh, I'd like to assemble things, fix things, tinker around. Uh, so and having that background and working construction, I saw how closely we could uh, match some of the, the trades to using this type of technology. That is not necessarily just um, physical use of robotics on site, but it's also software related, things of that sort that I jumped into afterwards. So that's kind of how I, I connected those dots. Nice. So being in the, the, the educational and the researching side of technology, how has that really impacted your view on the potential of contact? I think that being on the research side, on the academic side for, for a few years, uh, I've definitely seen the interest grow in this type of technology. There has been a huge influx of people that are trying to get involved with the lab on a large range of projects and trying to solve for their particular case. The interesting part that I've seen in the last two years is the romanticized version of what academic research is and the implementation on an industry. So there's a lot of good ideas that come from the university to create solutions. Um, so there's, but there's a disconnect between how those solutions are actually used on field. There's a whole world out there of uh, how technology is 
actually implemented on site or in practice. Yeah. So what really is that difference between the kind of the, the theoretical research side of things and then the practical reality of how it is really being implemented, the technology part in the field? Sure. The theoretical portion of academic research is largely based on developing minimal viable products or proof of concepts. So once we reach that stage, we typically look for additional funding or some type of uh, company to pilot it on. And that's just the startup portion of it. Now, the disconnect is the rollout into actual service or industry where they're looking for fully functional products that can be implemented immediately. This is a, you know, there's a lot of variables that are, that are attached to that, but bottom line is how much money are they going to make? You know, so that's what they're interested in. Uh, through my time at the university, we had the opportunity to receive a $1 million grant. Uh, we had a huge team helping on that very, very talented team of about 30 uh, uh, faculty members from all over uh, the university, computer engineering, architecture, construction, uh, you name it, they were there. And in this um, grant process or, or the development of a, a minimal bioproduct, and I'll get into that in a second, we held a symposium just to kind of get a bearing on what the industry was like, get a tap on their receptiveness to technology, because traditionally AEC is not the fastest adopting in technology. Uh, and one thing that we learned there, which was pretty evident, was that industry is looking for solutions that are ready to roll out that are easy to integrate into their whole ecosystem and not necessarily looking for testing out minimal viable products or risking any any type of uh, change to their bottom line because of a new technology to roll out. Mm -hmm. So how do you bridge that gap then in pushing uh, maybe a, a new innovative product or you know, technology that will change the industry that you know research is, is proving that it, it's going to make a big impact but the it hasn't been proved necessarily on the the practical on the job site side so how do you get them to kind of buy in and be those early adopters when they're wanting that hard proof that it's going to work and it's not that big of risk even though it might be <laughs> does that make sense does that question makes sense yeah. no <laughs> it makes it? perfect sense no yeah it makes perfect sense and, and to be quite frank with you it's it's people that are willing to risk they are people that are willing to try this out people mm -hmm. who are companies that are willing to put money in to try something out with a risk that it will be a loss or a bust you know there and you're seeing that trend spike up in the industry at the moment there's a lot of companies out there that either have a venture capitalist arm or an innovation department or some type of uh, department focusing on technological solutions and there is a moment where they have to go out to look at startups or universities to find these solutions and take that leap of faith and try to pilot it and see what it is and then that collaboration between industry academic industry startup is what grows a product to where it needs to be. There's um, going back to what I was mentioning earlier, uh, at least on the academic side, that romanticized version of what a product should be, that quickly gets quashed with understanding the realizations of it. And that process only happens when there's collaborations between these two entities, academia, research, startup side, and uh, industry. Yeah, yeah, that makes perfect sense. So on the, the research side of things, uh, 
who are what's the makeup of, of people coming into that space? Are, are they coming from the field, or are they do they have the the background in academia, or is there a mix there somehow? Yeah, it's a mix of the two. Uh, it's largely based on academic researchers, where they tap into people who are in industry. So we use our contacts, we leverage our contacts uh, in the industry. In the department that I was, the Department of Architecture, they have practices, most faculty have practices, and so they reach out to people in the industry. In construction, same is true. So they reach out to industry partners and uh, in also in the computer engineering side of things. So they really bring people that have this industry knowledge into the mix and more of a consultant role to guide us, uh, making sure that we don't hit barriers that are going to be, you know, just revoked off the bat. So making sure that we're going in the right direction to actually research something that is viable and that can be eventually implemented into the field. Yeah, I love that. I'm reading a book right now called The Art of Innovation. And it's, uh, I think I might've mentioned it to you before we we start yeah. recording, but uh, it's an incredible book. And they talk about the need and the importance of having these different perspectives from people outside of the industry, people inside the industry, people you know from very different backgrounds and, and and all the stuff of how that really fosters the uh the a climate for innovation and to kind of springboard off of each other because you get those different viewpoints and perspectives and somebody that's willing and and okay with asking the you know the the dumb question because they're that's not their space and uh how there's so much innovation that that happens from those people asking those kind of elementary questions that people that are in it day in and day out, totally overlook and, and don't think about. Um, so it, that kind of makes me think of what you were just saying of having people from different departments and, and different uh, backgrounds and, and stakeholders in on the research side of things. I think that's awesome. Yeah, definitely. Actually, I actually just got, I had to go, to, I got to go downstairs and pick up my copy. I ordered one uh, <laughs> to read it. So I'm, I can't wait to get to that chapter. And a hundred percent is it's um a very organic process you know especially with a grant you do have parameters with with uh grant and especially dealing with organizations like the national science foundations which is what we received our grant but the development when you're actually in there is a very organic process because what you initially start off with and plan and it's extensive planning turns out many times to not be the end result you know and that's a good thing that's a that's an excellent thing because you're growing off of that and those questions that are asked by, for example, a computer engineer coming and saying, what does this role or what does this piece of technology play in architecture? You know, why, why do they need this? Allows us in the department to, to reflect on that and give a answer that makes sense because there's a lot of assumptions sometimes that take place and either those assumptions are outdated or they're just wrong, you know, and you're proven that throughout the process, this organic process of bouncing back ideas. Hey innovators, is there a way to prepare your company for successful implementation of technological innovation? After over 115 episodes talking with some of the best minds in the construction industry, the answer is a resounding yes. There are building blocks that you can put into place that will form the foundation for your company to successfully implement technology. I have compiled my thoughts from those conversations into a new ebook simply titled Foundational Building Blocks for Successful Tech Adoption. You can download the ebook for free at our website, bridgingthegappod.com. After you have, 
I'd love to hear your feedback. As always, keep innovating. Yeah, absolutely. So kind of taking off on that kind of grant mindset aspect on the research side, how would you encourage organizations to pull that into their workflow and, and mindset to test it and have uh, a space where people can be free to test and collaborate and, and try new technologies like in the grant process so that they're when they're they're able to kind of find those hidden mysteries of oh we didn't expect it to do this but that's okay that's an awesome benefit like what you're just saying well if are you talking on the academic side or the industry side on the industry side how on the industry how can you pull side, that okay. mindset into the industry so on the industry side i think a great way of doing that is really reaching out to universities in this case and setting parameters for a project you know so a lot of times it's a university that comes up with an idea and they just kind of roll out with it and then they look for consultants and then they kind of have that barrier paradigm that i was describing mm -hmm. but it would be a completely different source if there was a use case for it in off the bat solve for x you know and the initial grant could be from the industry partner that can fund a minimal viable product that could lead to a grant that can get you know federal funding etc to develop that and then you're you know now you're cooking mm -hmm. now you got something working something that is already addressing an, a, an industry problem and working through that whole process it allows you to build up your team correctly it allows you to really identify the problem statement it allows you to form a articulate thesis and then work off of that yeah so nice. So that that would be my recommendation. A lot more engagement from from industry uh, with the through the lens of there is risk associated, but mm -hmm. the return might not be financial initially, but the the return will definitely be knowledgeable and knowing what succeeds, what fails, etc. Yeah, and risk doesn't have to be a bad thing. I know it has a, a negative connotation to it, but it doesn't have to be a bad thing. There's a lot of awesome, great things that that come from risking something. That's right. Fortune favors the bold. That's right. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> uh, so let's kind of dive into the the training aspect of it. You, let's you have the uh, a good technology piece. It's ready to be pushed out into the field. What makes for that effective training? And then how do you prepare people for the necessity that you're going to have to adapt on the fly as the, the need arises on the job site? Okay. Well, I can kind of talk to you that through 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 the grant and how we saw that. So the grant was to create a minimal viable product of a training simulation to teach robotics to the AEC industry. So we did a 45 minute simulation that's in virtual reality. Um, the team worked day and night to get it done. We had a really tight deadline. As, as a matter of fact, that's where it came up because uh, it was kind of working in part with IDEO. So that's uh -huh. where the, the, that book uh, reference came up. So they had a, this particular National Science Foundation project was making sure that academia was working with industry, which is why we had our, our partners come in. So our industry partners come in. So throughout this process, it was completely different. It wasn't a, a traditional fast, a, a traditional slow paced research project. It was a very fast paced research project, kind of solving and pivoting um, to solve the problems. So we created this virtual reality simulation to teach the fundamentals of, of robotic arm. We had a KUKA robotic arm inside the virtual environment, and you basically just learn 
how to jog, manually jog the robot and do some preliminary programming points, points with it. And the idea was, of that was using transferred knowledge to bring it over to an actual physical robot. So we had a, a funny case study where our dean of the, uh, of the college came in to test out the simulation. I wouldn't necessarily say he's the most technologically advanced person, you know? So uh, when he put on this headset, he immediately took into it. It was a very guided process. And at the end, we gave him the controller to the physical robot and he was able to transfer it right over. And nice. we've, we, you know, this, we rolled out a whole study on this and we've published papers on this using students to, to, to go through this process. So in 45 minutes, he was able to do what took me uh, about a week to do in Michigan training at the Cooper headquarters. So I think wow. that's a, a huge, huge advancement in training. Yeah. And this was one module in something that we were developing at the university called micro-credentialing. So micro-credentialing has three levels. At its base level, you have your actual micro-credential, where it is a, a course that you can take, which is six to 12 hours, depending on the content. You take about three of those courses and you move up to a micro badge. And then after three of those, two or three of those micro badges, you can move up to a micro degree. And this is actually where we're seeing a trend in education taking place right now. So it's not necessarily looking so much to a long-term degree, but mostly specializing in a certain type of skill. And for us, that skill was in this pilot, uh, fundamentals of robotic arms and understanding safety, anatomy, et cetera. Yeah. Really interesting. I, I think that's a, a a cool trend that the micro credentialing. What from your vantage point, what's the main kind of value of knowing someone's really exact expertise on particular skills? I think the value of it is that you can instantly roll them out into a particular role and have them perform in that role. Uh, not necessarily having to do a whole onboarding procedure extensive to do a general task, but you uh -huh. can directly make them the specialist of that task. Um, and, and I think more and more as, as you know, this technological revolution, you know, is happening in the AAC space is, is going on. I think that's going to play a more prominent role. You know, you're going to start seeing specialists in, well, you already know there's been managers, things of that sort in firms, but you'll start seeing specialists in other technologies, specialists in virtual reality, specialists in 3D printing, specialists in fabrication processes. And these specializations can roll out from that micro-credentialing. So instead of having to get a four-year degree in process automation or something like that, you can get this micro-credential that, that'll lead up to a micro-degree and then be a specialist in that field in a quarter of the time. The Bridging the Gap podcast is brought to you by Applied Software. With solutions for the modern project, Applied Software is on a mission to transform industries by empowering clients and championing innovation with real-world expert consultants. Their comprehensive array of solutions for AEC, MEP, and manufacturing has a singular focus, helping you achieve higher performance. With software, training, support, consulting, and custom development, Applied Software has you covered. Visit asti.com and let them know we sent you. Yeah, interesting. Do, so do you think it, it pigeonholes somebody into this particular, like this is what they're known for and they, they kind of get, they stay in that sphere or does it actually provide the flexibility because you can 
kind of concentrate over here if this is what you're interested in. And then if you want to, you know, go into the VR space, then you go over here and you can micro credential in that. And then you can kind of pop around without having to spend all the, the time in, you know, four year traditional degree program. Right. Uh, well, I think that's a loaded question there. <laughs> you know, it depends on, on the organization and also the person. I like to think that the, the people that are trying to look for these uh, micro credentialings or specializations are people who want to learn about these technologies and don't necessarily want to be pigeonholed. And uh, I mean, obviously, that, that'll be left to the company that they're working for. But I believe that if that company is utilizing that person who has that drive inside them there's a lot of lateral moves that can be happening you know and yeah. it doesn't necessarily have to be one person that is a king of the technology it can be one person that is specializing in that and then cross talking with another person and really seeing collaboration points nothing lives in silos you know so uh for example this micro credentialing that we were talking about if we we decided to do that just with a physical robot you know that would be one thing but we decided to integrate virtual reality into it. So that could be a case study for a company working on cre creating their own micro-credentialing. So they have their VR specialists working in part with their robotics specialists, you know, and then that cross-contamination and collaboration really makes a lateral spread to it. So now the roboticist could be a virtual reality specialist and vice versa. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a, it's an interesting dynamic because I think on the surface, it seems like it could potentially pigeonhole somebody, but I think it actually brings a lot of flexibility to mm -hmm. the situation. You know, if everybody on board has the right mindset that that's what it is, because you have that that freedom to kind of go where your interests are and, and specialize, and then you can really become kind of that that jack of all trades and go into areas that you are you're really passionate about. And if and company is able to see that, accept that, and then harness that they could go really far and do some really cool things by unleashing all that passion of their employees in, in areas that they're, they want to go into. I agree completely. Mind you, this is a opinion of somebody who <laughs> has worked in academia for, for a while and, uh, you know, was rewarded on innovation and doing lateral moves and taking initiatives to go to learn new technologies and things of that sort. At, which really equipped me with the lens of being able to combine these technologies and connecting dots that would under otherwise be unseen because you get pigeonholed, you know, mm -hmm. so uh, I definitely think that there is something there. Uh, and if the company is, you know, hiring these people and on the innovation route, they can definitely see, you know, have a little bit of foresight and seeing somebody being able to connect these dots in their own organization. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So why did you decide to make the shift from the educational research side of the house into the private sector? Putting, putting those dots together uh, that you can see in academia, but not necessarily see in the industry because you have so much in front of you. You have the lens of finances. You have a lens of, uh, you know, people who are going to adopt. You have a lens of, is your executive board going to approve it? You have all these lenses in front of you and i'm coming kind of with a fresh perspective and saying you know those are all good things to tackle you know and these are the dots that we can connect and this is how we can roll it out yeah i, I love that i think that that's a really valuable role too to, to have that dot connector 
in mm-hmm. on the team and to kind of see the the big picture and also see the details and figure out how you can move things around and uh, you know make sure it's it's all one cohesive picture definitely so over the last couple of years from your vantage point how, how have you seen the perception of contact really change in the industry I've seen it change dramatically, uh, especially, you know, these last two years have been extremely interesting because of the pandemic, you know, so a lot of technology got fast forward. You, you know, there's talks about when I when I was leaving the lab, we were talking about conducting research projects on teleoperation. So how can you control a piece of equipment without necessarily being on site, you know, uh, things of that sort. So the uh, ability for construction companies to find these technological solutions has really been fast tracked because of the circumstances that we've been under. So over the last two years, it's grown tremendously. There's been a lot more interest. We've seen people from computer engineering coming over to us, trying to talk to us. We see, you know, we, we have a wave of, of students that we're trying to intern uh, at the laboratory, trying to get an opportunity to bring their piece of, of or their idea and realize it or join us in support of one of our, our projects that we had going on at the lab at a time. And this is the wave of people that are going to be coming out and really affecting the industry. You know, there's another uh, there's another aspect to it, which I find extremely interesting because of the deficit that we have in labor in the construction industry, because it's a, it's always known to be a manual laborious job and not necessarily requiring too much uh, intellectual exercise in it, that trend is starting to change. You know, mm-hmm. what is a construction worker looking 10 years from now, five years from now? You know, will they be an operator of robotics? Will they be uh, doing their meetings with owners through virtual reality? Will they be able to implement artificial intelligence into their workflow to optimize their processes? So now you're starting to get these people who are, you know, in my in my experience, that are coming into the lab, trying to pilot these programs or join the research projects that are rolling out into the industry. And that'll be the next wave of technology, you know, uh, or that'll be the next wave of people that are implementing these technologies and really making this field something that is more interesting than it's been in the last, you know, couple of decades. Mm-hmm. I more than agree with that. I say it all the time. I think that we are right at the beginning of the, the golden age of construction here and it's such an exciting time to be in and around this industry the the growth potential is is huge the the innovation and the technology and the mindset that is coming into this industry is it's it's very exciting and uh invigorating for me at at least i I think that the potential is is astronomical right now definitely 100 percent and it makes me very passionate at what i do uh, I, I'm just glad to be at, you know, kind of a uh, base camp for this yeah. uh, moving forward. That's awesome. Uh, is there a particular trend that you're seeing that you think is going to help kind of shape the industry this year? Uh, not necessarily so much. Uh, I, what I've noticed throughout my time is there's a lot more SaaS based solutions uh-huh. rather than physical solutions. And there's, reasons for that SaaS base is or software base is very easy to pilot roll out uh you know integrate into your your system you don't necessarily have to have too much buy-in from everybody you know especially the people that are working on site 
but more so for people who are already in that space, working in the office, trying to find actual solutions to it. So we see a lot of SaaS-based solutions. The robotic side of it is a little bit more difficult. You know, dexterity, These a lot of these solutions nowadays are using technology that hasn't really improved since the 60s. And I'm talking about robotic arms, six axis manipulators. So these are some of the startups that you see out there. Or, you know, some type of um, ro roaming robot that does some type of work on site. Mm -hmm. Now, the problem with that is sites are completely unstructured environments. So, you know, and there's people walking around, there's things, you know, falling, there's things that were there one day and things that are not. So that side is, I hope, trends uh, in the right direction. And I think right now we're starting to see a lot of marriage between technologies that have been produced for other industries and injecting themselves into the construction industry as, as solutions. So yeah. my my role, at, my idea or my thoughts on that are in the next couple uh, up and coming years, we're going to start seeing more on-site solutions, more robotic solutions, more physical solutions that could either enable, assist, uh, help one of the uh, laborers there to not necessarily do as much work as they normally would, which can kind of minimize that gap of labor deficiency that we were speaking about, or completely take out one of those uh, jobs that don't necessarily want to be done by a laborer to allow them to focus where they would be best, where humans do their work best. Mm -hmm. Nice. Uh, well, if you could kind of snap your fingers and innovate one thing in the industry, what would it be? <laughs> probably the probably the robotics part, you know, probably having the mundane rep uh, repetitive jobs being completely automized, uh, mm -hmm. you know, having them having a smaller labor force that is really targeting critical parts of the, of the job site and having the rest of the job site completely automated and you know, in my head, in my crazy head, I think of a transformer like robot, you know, that it just, you know, detaches and comes out. There's certain parts of, of, of a robot that come out and go do something. And then they come back in and they form with other pieces of robotic uh, hardware and they go out and that those modules go and do another task, you know, yeah. and having the complete site automated uh, with documentation, fabrication, all that, all that stuff. You know, so, but that's a pipeline, dream. <laughs> that's a pipeline dream. But if I could snap my fingers, that'd probably be it. I love it. I, I see that. I see that vision. <laughs> I think there's something <laughs> there to it. I like it. <laughs> uh, well, well, how do people find out more information and connect with you? Uh, yeah, they can, they can reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm very active on, on LinkedIn. Uh, I love talking to people, you know, just having a conversation me, uh, I'll have a Zoom meeting with anybody to talk about, you know, my ideas and thoughts and, uh, and how I can help the industry, you know. Awesome. Well, final question for you. What does innovation mean to you? Innovation to me means a better future and a more prosperous future for not only construction, but for every industry. I like it. We're transformers rule the job site. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We'll get Optimus Prime, not Megatron. There, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> Choose your transformer carefully. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> well, thanks so much for joining the show today, Jorge. Really appreciate it. This is great. Thank you, Todd. I really appreciate you having me here.
And now it's time for my Todd takes from this episode. First take, we are experiencing the beginning of the golden age of construction. This is an amazing time to be exploring and adopting contact. I'm excited for the future of this wide reaching industry. Second take, it's important to develop an innovation incubation team within your company that is willing to try new things. Yes, innovation comes with an inherent risk, but that doesn't have to be a bad thing. When you have a mindset to try new things, you will discover powerful things you didn't know before. And final take, micro-credentialing is an interesting trend to keep tabs on. The potential to unlock greater flexibility in order to explore your technical interests and be rewarded is there, if we can collectively approach it with the right mindset. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you are interested in learning more, you can visit our sponsor, Applied Software, at asti.com for more information. You can listen to this podcast anytime by simply going to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out our website, bridgingthegappod.com. As always, I'm Todd Wyant, thanking you for joining us on the Bridging the Gap podcast. Keep innovating. Bridging the Gap is hosted, directed, and produced by Todd Wyant. Edited and produced by Eric Daniel. Bridging the Gap is an applied software production. Copyright Applied Software 2022.